All right. Well, good morning, church. I'm glad to join you on this Sunday morning and all the community groups that are meeting. Glad you guys are able to gather together and worship and praise uh, in the smaller settings that you all are in. Definitely look forward to the parks worship that we meet again. Uh, also look forward to next Sunday in our members meeting. Uh, when you come, you know, just know we'll be uh, swearing in new members and we'll be giving out a list of the new members that we're planning to uh, potentially swear in. We're also going to be sharing our church's summer plans of what summer is going to look like and also just about a lot of the life updates that's happening uh, within the life of the church. And so look forward to next Sunday. Also, uh, you know, want to shout out again our Wednesday Bible study. I think that's usually a time where um, I always walk away really encouraged and blessed. And even though I come away, I come into it tired, I walk away actually feeling a little more refreshed. And so if you find yourself feeling a bit tired or groggy during the week, especially spiritually, really want to encourage you to come out on Wednesdays. It's always an encouraging time. We have a little bit of different format of how we do it as well. So uh, please check it out. And we only have a few more weeks of that left. And this is your first time here joining us today. Again, we want to welcome you. And the past few Sundays, we've actually been going through a sermon series through the book of Genesis, uh, chapter 12 to 32. And if you ever read the book of Genesis or have you been with us for the past few weeks, you know that we've been focusing a lot on Abraham and the story of God's plan of redemption for all the earth through Abraham. But the past two weeks, it kind of shifted where Genesis is no longer talking about Abraham, but it's now focusing on his grandson, Jacob. Uh, he is the grandson of Jacob. He is the son of Isaac, which was Abraham's son. And I would actually argue Jacob is the most influential person in the Old Testament. Uh, I'd actually say he is somebody who, even more than Abraham, has a greater branding in the Old Testament than uh, Abraham does. And the reason why is because even though Abraham began the redemption plan for God, uh, God actually used Jacob to move forward the redemption plan most broadly. I almost like to liken it to where Abraham, he was like the movie Iron Man, where he began everything. But Jacob is like the Avengers, where it started the franchise. It kind of moved it forward. And so that's kind of who Jacob is in the Old Testament. Uh, but what's really interesting is when you look at the life of Jacob, you sometimes can't help but wonder why God would start the franchise with this person. Because Jacob, he does not look like a franchise player. Uh, at, when he, Jacob was born, we saw this two weeks ago, Jacob and his brother Esau, they were both in the same womb. And when Esau was coming out and was getting delivered, Jacob grabs Esau's heel and holds on to it. It's almost as if Jacob was fighting to say, hey, I'm coming out first. I'm the firstborn. Uh, later on, when they got older, Jacob actually manipulates Esau to give him his birthright as the firstborn. And so the inheritance that was due to Esau is actually going to was given to Jacob. And as an adult, Jacob, he tricks his father, Isaac, to bless him with the inheritance of the firstborn. And so Jacob, it's now fully his. And I remember before when I saw those stories or heard of it, I always thought, oh, Jacob, he's that rebellious kid, that rebellious teenager who has a lot to learn. But did you guys know when all that was happening, Jacob was 40 years old. He's older than most of us here when he was doing all that trickery. And so I realized, wow, Jacob, he's actually just not a good person. Have you ever seen that movie, uh, Knives Out? Uh, Chris Evans' character, he was, he was kind of like that shady guy who just tried to manipulate everybody. That's basically Jacob. Jacob is this manipulative, shady guy who tries to use people to get his way. And he's somebody where if I met him, I would not want to be his friend. 
let alone have him be on my leadership team, let alone have him be the key player for anything that I'm a part of. And yet, God chose Jacob. Why? Why did he choose him? And why is Jacob even like this? I mean, isn't Jacob the son of Isaac? Isn't he the grandson of Abraham? Doesn't he believe in God? Well, you know, here's the actual problem. Jacob, he most likely grew up during his 40 years of life, knowing about God, hearing about all of the stories of his God's faithfulness, hearing about the promises that he has given to Abraham and Isaac. But there is nothing in Jacob's story so far that indicates that he actually worships God, that he actually follows Yahweh. He knows a lot about God, but he doesn't really know God. He is somebody who hears stories about God, but it's not yet Jacob's story. He's aware of the promises, but it's not something that really excites him personally. In fact, in chapter 27, verse 20, when Jacob is talking to Isaac about the promises, what Jacob tells Isaac is in verse, in verse 20, the Lord your God let him grant me success. He calls God Isaac's God. It's not his God. Jacob, in other words, he's actually, I think, like a lot of us, where a lot of us here, you grew up in the church. You heard all the Bible stories. You are somebody where you know about God's promises and blessings for your life. But if you're really honest, your faith is a lot more religion than relationship. It's a lot more ritualistic than it is something that's vibrant. The Bible stories that you hear, they're just Bible stories. They're not really your story. And the promises that you hear that God gives to the Christian, those are nice promises, but you're seeking after better promises for yourself. And maybe for some of you, that's not your entire life where you go, wait, God is real to me. But maybe recently, for the past season, that's kind of been you, where you are kind of just going through the motions. You are functionally more like a cultural Christian, where your faith is far more religion than it is a living relationship. You're playing church these days. You don't really feel yourself growing. God feels like somebody that you know about, but not somebody that you really know. How can we change this? How do we get out of that stuck mode of just being stuck in this religiosity, this cultural Christianity? How can faith be something that's not just cultural, but something that actually is personal? Not just something we inherit from other people, or from our family, but something that actually changes us. Well, today, what we're going to see is something happened to Jacob, this 40-year-old man who was just pushing his own agenda, very just knew about religious stuff, but something happens to Jacob in the passage we're going to look at that changed everything. You see, Jacob, the context for the passage we're going to look at is Jacob, he just tricked his family where he took the blessings of the firstborn, and now his brother Esau wants to kill him. He wants to murder him. So his mom, Jacob's mom, goes, get out of here. Go to your uncle Laban, run away. And what we see is Jacob is traveling to the city called Haran, where something happens that shifts Jacob's life. So if you guys have your Bibles, if we turn to Genesis chapter 28, and we'll look at verses 10 to 22. So Genesis chapter 28, verses 10 to 22. And we're going to look at one of the most famous passages in all of scripture, especially in the book of Genesis. So Genesis chapter 28, verses 10 to to 22. If you're there with me, I'm going to read in starting verse 10, and we'll go all the way to verse 22. And it says, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. 
Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I've done what I promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And all that you give me, I'll give a full tenth to you. This is a reading of God's word. Now, what's going on here? How, what happened the story? How did it, what happened where it changed Jacob? And how does it relate to us today as we read a story? We're going to learn three things. First, we're going to learn about the presence of God. The presence of God in this story. Second is the experience of grace, the experience of grace in the story. And lastly, the beginning of transformation, the beginning of Jacob's transformation. So let's look at the first part, the presence of God. So this story that we just read, it begins where Jacob is traveling from Beersheba to Haran, from his hometown to his uncle Laban's hometown. And then suddenly it turns dark and Jacob, he rests for the evening. Look again at verse 10, 11. It says, Jacob left Beersheba, went to Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head, and he lay down that place to sleep. Now, at first glance, when you read that, it doesn't seem like much is happening. It just seems like Jacob is traveling, and he's just spending the night just kind of setting up the story. But I'd actually argue there is a lot more going on in these two verses than we realize. Notice, for example, when Jacob chooses to stop somewhere and rest, he rests in a place that the author calls a certain place. This is very unusual because throughout Genesis, the narrator is very, very particular about the cities that people stay in. He always, whenever Abraham goes to different cities or different places or Isaac, he always names the mountain that he's going to, the city that he's at, the country that he's in. But here, when Jacob's on his way to Haran, he all of a sudden stops by somewhere. And we know it has a name. Later on, it's called the city of Luz. But the narrator goes, it's a certain place. Imagine if I called you and I said, hey, can you pick me up? And you ask me, sure, okay, I'll pick you up. Where are you at? And I go, a certain place. If, you, if I said something like that to you, you would probably think, huh, Tom doesn't know where he's at. He's lost. And that's exactly what's going on here. Jacob left his family, and he knows where he's going. He's going to Haran, but he rests at a certain place because the narrator is telling us is that Jacob, he's lost in life right now. He's lost. 
He's on the run. He's a fugitive. But his life is kind of in shambles. Everything that he once knew is now gone. He's headed somewhere that he doesn't really know what it's like. His life is lost right now. He is lost. Notice also when Jacob decides to sleep somewhere in this certain place, notice what he uses to sleep on as a pillow. He sleeps on a rock. <laughs> what in the world? Why is he sleeping on a rock? That is the last thing I would think of, of using as a pillow. But the reason why Jacob is sleeping there is because he's sleeping outside. He's outdoors in the woods. In the ancient world, people never sleep outside, especially at night. They will always find some type of relative or acquaintance to lodge at someone's place because you're vulnerable to thieves, to wild animals. There's no street lights. There's no policemen. But Jacob, he's on the run, far away from all social networks right now, disconnected from anybody that he knows. In other words, what this shows that Jacob sleeping outside by himself means is Jacob, he's all alone, vulnerable, at the mercy of his surrounding. And notice lastly that Jacob, when he's sleeping outside by himself at dark in the cold, notice this is such a contrast, his current life right now, to the life that he had just left. Remember, Jacob, he had just received the blessing. He had just received the inheritance from his father. He was given this promise about his future. It's like getting an acceptance letter to an Ivy League school. Like there's something awaiting for you. And in Genesis 28, there's a part of it where Isaac tells Jacob, this is the plan that God has. It says, may God give you the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine and let people serve you and nations bow down to you. That was the promise given to Jacob. Those are the last words he heard that was promised to him when he left. But now Jacob, instead of receiving the dew of heaven and fatness of earth, all he has is a rock to sleep on. Instead of nations bowing down to him, nations are potentially going to attack him. He's by himself alone. In other words, Jacob right now is not just lost. He's not just alone. He's disillusioned. Life is not the way he thought it probably would have been for him. Jacob is in a situation by himself, a situation where I think for a lot of us, we probably find ourselves in a lot too. You know, whenever I said this before, but I say it again, because it's always amusing to me. It's always, always amusing to me when I talk to young people, especially when they're in college, and they have their lives all figured out. What's your major? Bio major. What's your plan? I'm going to study for bio. And after I get my bio major, I'm going to go to grad school. Once I go to grad school, I'm going to get an internship. And after my internship, I'm going to start my career. Looks great. And I go, oh, you got it all figured out. Or if I talk to somebody, hey, you plan to, uh, how's your dating life? What's your relationship life? Oh, I'm going to wait. Oh, why? Well, I'm going to meet someone maybe at the end of college, and then maybe you're know, going to get married age 25, no later than age 25. It's going to be age 25. And oh, when do you have kids? Ah, we'll wait two to three years. And once we start having kids, I want about three, maybe two kids or so. And that's the plan. You got it all figured out. That's oftentimes what our life is. We have this plan. It's figured out. There's a timeline. But I don't know about you, but more often than not, as time passes by, a lot of things don't go as smoothly as we thought. And it can be hard. For example, what do you do when you don't get into like grad school or you don't get the grades that you thought you were supposed to get? Or what if you get into all of that and you're in the job that you're supposed to have, but you don't like your job and now you're 25 and you go, hmm, this isn't the job I thought I would want. Or what if you're 25 and you go, huh, I was supposed to get married by now, but I don't even have a boyfriend or girlfriend. I'm still completely single. 
Or what if, you know, you got married and you go, you know, now it's the time. I waited two to three years. Now it's the time to start trying to have kids. But after a few years of trying, you still don't have any kids. What's going to happen to you? Oftentimes, without knowing it, you're going to start feeling a lot like Jacob. You feel lost. You feel alone. You feel disillusioned. And when your life looks like this, when you find yourself in a situation like this, God often feels very far away. Because how could God be present in a mess like this? Because we often think God is someone who we notice or we praise or we recognize when things are going well, when things are turning out great. I remember two weeks ago, three weeks ago, rather, we had that Easter service and we gathered together. And I remember after the Easter service, our staff met and we said, how was the Easter service? And all of us were saying like, you know, I felt God moving in that Easter service. Man, I felt like God was present during that Easter service. Why are we saying things like that? Because everything went well. It was really encouraging. And so all of us like God must have been here because it went so well. Now contrast that to, I remember years ago, I planned this retreat for our church before. And the retreat was horrible. It was the worst lodging, the worst type of program. Nobody was blessed at all. And when we reviewed how the retreat went, nobody said, wow, God was present. Man, God was moving. We all were just like, man, let's never do that again. Like that was horrible because nothing went well. And the reason why is because we naturally believe God is moving. God is present in our life when things are going well, when he's blessing us, when he's kind of pushing things that we feel like ought to be pushed. But here's what's interesting. This is what makes the story that we just read very fascinating. What's interesting is that, you know, so far in Jacob's life, God has never once appeared to Jacob. He appeared to Abraham before where he spoke to him. He appeared to Isaac. He appeared to Sarah. He appeared to Hagar. But up to this point, Jacob being age 40, Jacob, God never once came to Jacob and talked to him. It was complete silence until this moment. For the first time in Jacob's life, when he is lost, alone, and disillusioned, now God shows up. Now God decides, okay, I'm going to introduce myself to him. Why? Because this is the type of God that he is. God is not the type of God who's only present when things are going well, in the highs of life, in the deep moments or the successful moments, the peaks that you're going through, nor is he just the type of God who's there for just the low crisis moments. He's the type of God who's there in all the messy parts in between. That's what this text is trying to show us. Because most of Jacob's life, it's going to be messy. The span of that we're going to see in Jacob's life, it's not a span of a few days or a few months. We're going to see Jacob wandering to Haran and living in Haran with his uncle and going through all this crazy stuff for 20 years. He's going to be there for 20 years. And the Bible's only going to record a couple of events. And all that time, it's going to be really hard for Jacob. But God wants Jacob to know while he's in this unknown place, this random place that he's traveling to, that God is present with him. In those moments. And that's why in verse 16, Jake, the Bible makes a very big deal. Where in verse 16 of our story, it says, Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. 
In other words, Jacob, he realizes that this God is not just this ritualistic God that you visit every once in a while or God that you praise when big life moments happen. This is a God who's always there. This is a God who always wants us to know that he is present with us. In other words, this is a God who it's not just a religion. It's actually a life-giving relationship. People often wonder what makes marriage sweet, what makes marriage great. And sometimes we get fooled by social media. When we see couples post pictures of them celebrating their anniversary or traveling, we think, ah, that's a great marriage. That's what I want. But you know, in reality, that happens maybe three times a year at most. At most, it happens three times a year. That's why some couples only post three times a year because they don't do much. The reality is what makes a marriage sweet are not those big dramatic moments in life, but it's those everyday moments we go through, the highs, the lows, the mundane. But we're there with each other. We're present with each other. We're together in those moments. And for many Christians, here's the problem for us. We're only aware of God's presence on Sundays when we gather together or when there's great seasons, when we get that new job or we get married and we remember things about the blessings of who God is. But God wants Jacob to know and God wants his people to know that his presence is everywhere for those who have eyes to see. That he is a God who wants to relate with us and have us experience his presence in not just the good, nor just the extreme bad, but even the mundane, even the seasons of feeling lost, even the feelings of dryness. And so if I can encourage our church, if you're going through the motions right now, because you are somebody who you just feel like, ah, oh, what's the purpose of my life? What's going on here? What God wants to let you know is that like Jacob, he's present in these situations. He's present in moments like this. And you can experience his presence in the most unlikely of scenarios that you are in. Because God is a God not limited to these highs, to these special moments, but he is a God who wants relationship with his people always, intimately, and his presence to be experienced and known. Secondly, though, what we see going on here is not just God's presence being realized, but also notice that we talk about the second point being the experience of grace. Realize, uh, the reason why Jacob, he uh, even knows God is present here isn't just because he came to himself, but notice that Jacob, he experienced a dream and he had a vision of something. Look what the vision is in verses 12 to 13. It says, Jacob dreamed and behold, there was a ladder set up on earth and on top of it reached the heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, our father, and the God of Isaac. Now, this vision is very famous. You might have heard of Jacob's ladder before, uh, but it's kind of strange. Um, and so it's helpful to break down what exactly is it that this vision is. What did Jacob see? And there's actually three parts to this vision. The first thing Jacob sees is what our translations call a ladder. Um, now, I don't know about you, but when I think of a ladder, I think of that skinny thing where you climb up on top of the roof, and that's most likely not what Jacob saw, because a ladder is a very modern invention. Most likely, a better translation, I think, is actually a stairway, and what's probably this is referring to is what the ancients saw as a ziggurat. Now, ziggurats are these pyramid-looking things that people back in Jacob's day would build, kind of like a, a, almost like a temple. It functioned as a place where people could meet God where it was uh, the connection between heaven and earth. And when you build a ziggurat, people would bring sacrifices to this uh, building. And what's happened is that God is supposed to come down and receive the sacrifices. And that's just how religious people did things. But the main difference between the ziggurat of the ancient world and what Jacob is seeing right now is that Jacob didn't build a ziggurat. God built it. It's not coming from earth to heaven. It's coming from heaven to earth. 
The second thing that Jacob sees is on the ziggurat, he actually sees angels ascending and descending upon it. It's not people worshiping on it, but angels are going up and down this stairway. Now, in the Old Testament, the angels are always there to do one of two things. Angels will either bring a divine message from God to his people, or angels are there to signify the divine presence, that God is there. And I think what the angels, why they're doing this, why they're on the stairway, is because of that second reason. God is there. And that's exactly what happens. Jacob sees the stairway, and he sees the Lord himself is standing there, looking at Jacob and speaking to him. Now, what's interesting is when, Abraham, when God looks down at Jacob and starts speaking to him, it's interesting the things that God says. God says there's two things going on here. First, God gives what some scholars call patriarchal promises, meaning these familiar promises that Jacob has heard. The same promises that God once gave to Abraham and Isaac. The land which I give you, verse 13, it's going to be to your offspring. Your offspring will be the dust of the earth. If you heard this before, it's kind of like us Christians today hearing how God is, is for you. He's not against you. He loves you. It's kind of those very cliche things that we hear. That's probably what Jacob almost hearing when he hears God say these promises. As true and important as they are, these are familiar promises that God gave to Abraham and Isaac. But something's different in verse 15. In verse 15, all of a sudden, God doesn't just give the Abrahamic covenant, doesn't just give the patriarchal promises, but God starts to give personal promises. And he says this never to Abraham, never to Isaac, it's just to Jacob. And look what he says in verse 15. God says, behold to Jacob, and I am with you, and will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. What's, why does God say this? Why does God say this and add this addition to Jacob with the promises? God is actually ministering to Jacob right now. He's talking about the specific things that Jacob is struggling with and that God is bringing comfort to. Jacob, again, he's absolutely alone. He has nobody right now. And that's why God promises in that context, I am with you. I'm going to be with you. Jacob is vulnerable right now. He is at the mercy of his circumstances. And that's why God tells him, I will keep you wherever you go. I'm going to protect you. And Jacob right now has no security, no comfort, nobody, no familiarity at all. He's in a foreign land. And that's why God promises him, I'm going to bring you back to the land. I promise I'm going to bring you home. Now, there's so much going on there with the vision, with the, with the, the promises, Maybe we should have a Sunday Q&A, but we're not. But there's a lot going on there to even explain that. But, you know, to me, what I find to be the most interesting part of this whole section, it's not the vision. It's not the promise. It's the context of the vision and the promise. That's what's most interesting to me. Notice when God appears to Jacob and gives these promises. Notice what Jacob is doing. Jacob was not praying. He wasn't like in the middle of a morning prayer going, Lord, and seeking God where God appears to him. Notice that when God appears, it's not like Jacob, he, it's after he passed this test of faith where he was going through intense suffering and he was proved to be faithful and now God appears to him. And notice that even Jacob, he's not even seeking God at this moment. It wasn't like Jacob was like, oh, I'm so lost. All I have is the Lord, please come. And then the Lord appears to him. Not at all. What's Jacob doing? What was he doing this whole time? He was sleeping. Jacob was just sleeping, not seeking God. 
He didn't do anything faithful. He just tricked his family and he stole his inheritance. There is, not, there is no sense of anything that Jacob did that warranted God to appear to him with this great vision and offer these promises. There is nothing worthy about Jacob in his entire life that, that would warrant for God to come and to appear in this grand vision for Jacob. And the reason why, though, that God does this, and he appears at this moment, though, is that the God of Abraham and Isaac, and now Jacob, he wants Jacob to know that he is a God of grace. He is a God who gives to the undeserving. He is a God who comes not because you proved yourself righteous or you've done amazing things, or even, even if you're seeking after him. But God is a God who comes before you in spite of anything you've done, because that's what grace is. And he offers these promises, not because Jacob, if Jacob, if you do this, if Jacob, if you do that, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to take care of you. He offers it regardless of what Jacob does, because God, he is a God of grace. And this is a radical transformation in Jacob's life. Back in the 2012 Olympics, this was what now eight, nine years ago or so. I remember I was, you know, like everybody else watching the Olympics. And I don't know if you guys remember, there was a commercial that ran in the 2012 Olympics where just the, the commercial shows like it's a child who's just like getting up and running. It's a little kid running and the mom's like dropping him off. And all of a sudden you see the mom doing like laundry for the kid. And then the next scene, like music in the background, next scene, the kid, you see him running again and you see the mom doing laundry and the kid, every scene gets like older and he's still running and the mom, she's getting older, but she's doing his laundry. It's just like going splicing back and forth, back and forth where he's running, he's running, she's doing laundry, she's doing laundry. And it's just pretty much showing like, oh my goodness, all the things that the mom is doing for this child as he's preparing and running. And all of a sudden the commercial keeps going like that, where it's like this intense music where the kid's running laundry. And all of a sudden now the kid has become an Olympic athlete running and he wins the medal and he's all older now. And all of a sudden he looks at the audience and it's his mom who's clapping and the most emotional. And he just points at her going like, you know, it's all you, all those little things that the mom did for him. And, you know, this, this commercial, it's a, it was a laundry commercial, so it makes sense why they would try to do something like that. But I remember when I was watching that, I was like, oh, my goodness, like, that was really emotional for me watching it. Because, like some of you, maybe, when I see commercials like that, I think of my mom. And I realize all the things that she's done for me. And here's the problem. My mom did just as much laundry as that mom in the commercial, except I would never became an Olympic athlete. <laughs> I, never, I never won a medal. There is nothing fantastic that got, that got produced as the result of that. There is no reward for my mom when she did all of that. She just did it for me without knowing exactly what was going to happen. And I realized in moments like that, when I realized, oh my gosh, look what all my mom did. I did nothing to deserve that. In fact, I probably caused my mom heartache in the midst of her folding my laundry. And I don't remember once ever going up to my mom saying, thank you for all those years of folding my laundry. Never once. In other words, when I realize moments like that, for some reason, it makes me appreciate my mom more. When I saw that commercial, I just like kind of, you know, texted my mom going like, hey, just want to say, you know, for no reason, I, you know, thank you for being my mom. <laughs> like you just kind of randomly messaged them like that. And I realized that, oh, the reason why I kind of shifted is I realized a lot of my relationship with my mom was grace. It was undeserved. She did things for me without wanting anything in return. And when you realize that about your parents or about anybody, 
it kind of changes the nature of that relationship from duty to delight, from just honoring her to now actually loving her. Where I don't just, you know, slowly as I get older and I realize more and more that my parents have done for me, I don't just talk to them now when I need something. I just talk to them because I want to talk to them. I don't just respect them because they deserve respect. I want to actually care for them and take care of them. Why? Because I'm learning more. This relationship I had with my parents when I was younger, so much of it was actually filled with grace, things I did not deserve, and yet they provided for me far more than I ever asked for. This is exactly the type of encounter Jacob has with God right now. God, he gives Jacob the type of care, protection, provision, and promise that Jacob did absolutely nothing to deserve. God appeared to Jacob, offering promises to him, even though Jacob is unworthy of it. And for you and I, God does the same. Just as God offers promises to be with Jacob, God promises his new covenant people that he will also never leave them or forsake them. God promises to protect Jacob, and he also promises his new covenant people that he is faithful and just and will rescue them from all attacks. And just as God promised Jacob that one day he's going to bring him home, God promises his new covenant people that he will also bring us home into his presence. And these promises, they're offered not because of anything that we've done as his new covenant people, but simply because of his grace. And so if you want to begin to shift your relationship with God from religion to relationship, this is actually the key. We need to remember grace. It's not us doing more and us trying harder and getting us, ourselves out of that funk. But we need to realize that so much of what we receive, so much of what we have, it's due to what God has done purely because of his grace and his grace alone. And I think that's why oftentimes a lot of us, we don't experience his grace. Because when you experience his grace, most powerfully, it's not in the good seasons where you're doing well and you feel spiritual and you're reading your Bible and you're praying a lot and you're going to church and you go to God and you go, let's, let's have it, God, let's, let's fellowship. Those are moments of just sweetness, but you want to feel the experience of grace. It's when you're not doing well. It's when you're not reading your Bible. It's when you're not praying. It's when God feels really far away, but you come to him asking for him to still fellowship with you. When you come to him, despite the sin and shame, and God offers you his comfort, his promises, his love, not because of what you deserve, but because of the grace that he offers to you. That's one reason, that's one way that changes us. It changes Jacob. We need the grace of God in our lives again. And that leads to the last part, the beginning of transformation. The story ends that we just read where Jacob, he experiences that crazy dream. And all of a sudden he wakes up and when Jacob wakes up, all of a sudden he realized that he just saw the presence of God. God was here. And all of a sudden what's interesting is the narrative goes and everything changes. There's a lot of transformation that happens. First of all, the stone that Jacob was sleeping on, it's no longer just a stone. But he's like, this stone is different now. And it says in verse 18, so early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under, that he had under his head and he set up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. The stone is different. This is no longer just a pillow. It's a pillar now. Knowing that the certain place that Jacob was in, that he was staying at, he was looking around going, this isn't just a certain place anymore. This is a new place. In verse 19, it says, he called the name of that place Bethel. The land, the city, it changed. 
before it was this dark, scary place. Now it's God's sanctuary. But probably most importantly, not just the stone change, not just the city change, but Jacob changed. Where God is no longer just Isaac's God, no longer just Abraham's God, but Jacob says he is now my God. In verse 20, 22, it says, then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me this way that I go and will give me bread to eat, clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. This stone, which I've set up for a pillar shall be God's house and all that you give me, I'll give a full tenth to you. You know what the implication of this is? This is when you know that you've really changed from having a religion to a relationship with God. It's not just be, you're not a Christian or somebody who has a relationship with God just because you went to an altar call saying, I accept the Christ. It's not just because of a retreat where we have an experience and we go, oh, I now have a relationship with Christ. What happens is when you have a real relationship with Christ, where you experience his presence and you experience his grace, there will be something that changes. There is transformation that happens in a person's life. Religion is God is just someone sprinkled into your life, but your life looks pretty much the same, even if you never were a Christian. Relationship or gospel, this is when God rearranges your entire life, where it looks completely different than what it would have if you never met him. Like Jacob, God is now your God. You rely now on his provision. His house is now more important than your house. You are not just a giver, you're not just a taker, but you are now a giver. And while you are not perfect after this, just like Jacob, you're going to see him mess up all the time after this. He is messed up still, but the trajectory and the values and the journey has radically shifted after this experience. Wouldn't it be nice if God did this for us? Those of you who are tired and weary, you go, oh, Jacob, he had this radical moment. If God came to me with the dream and I saw a stairway with angels everywhere, then maybe I could wake up, but... How can you experience something like that? Well, this is where it's interesting. The Gospels, when you read the New Testament, there's a group of men where they're all looking for the Messiah. And all of a sudden, this guy named Jesus comes. And it's a very interesting passage in the Gospel of John, where this guy named Nathaniel, he doesn't believe Jesus is the Messiah. And when Jesus comes to Nathaniel and he tells him, hey, I, know, I saw you from the fig tree. And Nathaniel goes, oh, my goodness, like you're the Messiah. And Jesus says something very interesting. Jesus says in chapter, John chapter 1, verse 51, he says, you believe this? And he said, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Why does Jesus say that? Jesus is telling his disciples, I'm not just this prophet. I'm not just this teacher. I'm not just this Messiah that you guys think is going to free you from Rome. I am everything Jacob saw at that dream at that vision in the flesh. Jesus is saying, I am the ladder. I am the stairway who connects heaven and earth, whom the angels upon me ascend and descend. I am the one, Jesus says, who shows you, not just shows you how to get from earth to heaven, but I bring heaven to earth. Jesus is the one who does not just fill patriarchal promises, but also offers us personal promises. He is a greater stairway for his people. And the reason why that Jesus, you can even say he's even a greater vision than Jacob's ladder is Jesus doesn't just come down to Jacob's like us, but Jesus, he takes the place of Jacob's himself. The gospel tells us on the cross, Jesus didn't just come down from heaven, but he experienced the loss of Jacob's, the loss of all people. 
the abandonment of all social networks, the disillusionment and disappointment of all life were placed upon Jesus Christ himself at the cross. And this is why if we wanna transform our relationship with God from religion to relationship, it's not just about doing more, it's about fellowshipping deeper with Jesus, knowing him, loving him, developing intimacy with him, because Jesus is the one who connects us to the Father, where we remember him, we remember that God is truly present with his people still, and he still offers us all the time undeserving grace. The more deep and intimate you grow with Christ, the more and more religion falls off and it transforms into a deep, intimate relationship with the Father. And so if I could encourage our church, if you're experiencing a Jacob moment in your life, where you're kind of just feeling blah, going through the motions, the text reminds us to remember God is present always, even in the mundane, even in seasons like this, if you just have eyes to see, that God offers grace that we don't deserve. And the more we are aware of this grace in our lives, the more we can't help but have the transformation of our relationship with God. And we find both of those meeting, especially in the person of Christ, fellowshipping with him, looking to him, not ourselves, in order to receive and experience God's presence and his grace so that we can experience him more personally. Let's have that be the truth in our life this week. Let me pray for us.